The top story is the three Apollo-Soyuz mission astronauts have arrived in Washington for a White House Awards luncheon tomorrow hosted by President Ford. Justice Department officials said to be considering the subpoena of witnesses before a federal grand jury in Detroit in connection with the disappearance of former Teamsters chief Jimmy Hoffa. And that, friends, is the 9 o'clock edition of the news. This is John Scott reporting for Lester Smith. Next news as it happens, next scheduled news tonight at 11 over WOR Radio 710, the talk of New York. And now Gene Shepard, next over WOR New York. sign didn't go on. Just think what I could have said. It really didn't. <laughs> see, that's what, that red light over there, Brenda, see, that goes on me, you know, five minutes. And, uh, see, this is connected to the preamplifier, and then it goes, you know all about those things, right, huh? <laughs> My God, science is fantastic, isn't it? You know, uh, I just uh, have a note here, it says, uh, Shepard, uh, whatever happened to soul food? Oh, soul food. Do you remember when they always talking about soul food? No, Whatever happened to Rice Krispies? I mean, you know, bring it up, please. Shredded wheat. <laughs> yes, uh, that reminds me. Whatever happened to Kahootek? I mean, you know, remember that big thing? Oh, listen, I had a, it was a really sad thing about Kahootek. You remember Kahootek, don't you? That Indian chief that you were calling that was making a lead? Oh, that was another, I'm sorry. Uh, that was a politician. But uh, there was a thing called the Kahootek. See how fame is? I mean, even natural phenomena. Uh, have a have a lifespan today in this age of the mental yo-yo uh, of about maybe 15 or 20 milliseconds. Whatever happened to Old Faithful? Oh, no, no. Old Faithful uh, was turned off here about six months ago uh, due to rising costs, and uh, Old Faithful just isn't faithful anymore. You know, just like so many things, you know. Just, uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, I, uh, whatever happened to the uh, whispering natural bridge of... Uh, of Webster, West Virginia. Well, you used to hear a lot about that. In fact, there was a song called uh, Natural Bridge, West Virginia. I love to see you standing so solidly. And it's a beautiful tune. It was written by Abe Burroughs. It really was. I have it somewhere. I'm probably the only guy in the world who has a copy of Abe Burroughs singing uh, Natural Bridge, West Virginia. <laughs> Terrible record, and that's why I keep it. Because uh, I like to remind myself of man's mortality. I, I uh, perfection always bothers me. I, I, I uh, listen. I obey the Greek ideals, which was always to build an imperfection in every uh, thing you do. And uh, those of you who have listened regularly know that I consistently build imperfections in everything I do. Very, very. Well, that's all done deliberately, because I know that perfection would uh, turn you off just terrible. I mean, it's just like, you know, you meet this perfect girl, and immediately you're aware that you've got a tie made out of tinfoil. And, uh, you know, and all, right, <laughs> you know, all the bad things. But, uh, you know, speaking of Kahootek, I met this friend of mine, just terrible thing here, about three or four months ago, I go into the chock full of nuts, you know, and, and I sit down, and there's my friend standing there, and he's, he's uh, looking very moody and chewing somberly on a, on a chocolate brownie. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of sad thing because he was so ebullient up to this point, you see, because he was one of these guys that uh, he'd go into 
chocolate nuts at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He wouldn't come out till 5, and he'd be all chocolate brownied up and staggering down the street and yelling, and after all, that orange drink and stuff. And so here he was. He was nibbling away at this chocolate browning, looking bugged, and I said, come on, Stan, what the heck is it? The chocolate brownie is one thing you can rely on in this world. Everything else is, you know, no cal. Everything has gotten to be uh, new, new, all new. Try it this week. The chocolate brownie remains what it is almost indigestible and fattening. And that's something you can count on. And he says, quit talking about chocolate brownies. I said, Stan, there was a time when I could come in here and, and, and engage you in conversation for two or three hours about chocolate brownies. What the hell's happening to you? You know, there are some people you can talk to about booze for hours. Oh, yes, you can go into a bar, and it's easy to get a conversation going for three or four hours about what beer is best. You know, which is academic. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. You know, they keep falling off and hitting their head on the floor and getting back up again, you know. And, uh, <laughs> I heard somebody, I heard a guy describe the other day as the kind of guy that thinks uh, Balanchine of the uh, New York City Ballet is some kind of a beer. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> yeah, you know, life is the way life is. You know how life is, right? And one thing life is doing to you at all times, it's selling to you constantly at all times, right? There's something very reassuring about cruising the Caribbean with a crew that traces its seafaring traditions back a thousand years. I'm George Clinton for Norwegian America Line. When I tell you there's a touch of yesterday aboard the Saga Fjord, you may wonder what I'm referring to. After all, she's a thoroughly modern ship with electronic navigation equipment and ride-smoothing stabilizers. But being Norwegian, she's manned by a crew to whom sailing is second nature. You can sense the difference, not only in the confident seamanship, but in the service that also maintains the best European traditions. It all serves to remind you that cruising the Caribbean aboard the Norwegian-registered Sagafjord does indeed offer a touch of yesterday today. Cruise with Norwegian America Line from Florida. They'll pay your one-way economy airfare or a $50 bonus if you live in Florida. Call your travel agent for a touch of yesterday, today. Oh, okay, let's see here. If you're into elephants, uh, here's an elephant thing here. Uh, <laughs> an elephant thing. Uh, it's a book. It's called Among the Elephants. And it's gotten a lot of great reviews. In fact, uh, it was written by Ian and Oria Douglas Hamilton. And they were out in the jungles of East Africa. And by the way, they have some wild jungles out there. And uh, I, I was there, so I know. Nevertheless, uh, they did a great book on elephants, and it's supposed to be a classic in its field, and it's called Among the Elephants, and it has uh, fantastic photographs and all kinds of, a uh, lot of information about elephants, which are a rapidly disappearing species, by the way. And they got some good reviews, like, for example, Superb from the New Republic, and of course they've always been ape over elephants anyway. So nevertheless, uh, this book called Among the Elephants is uh, worthwhile taking a look at. It's published by the Viking Press. The title again, Among the Elephants. It's another great day for tennis at the Royal Biscayne Beach Hotel and Racquet Club on Key Biscayne. Oh, wow. The Caribbean island in Florida. Wow. The sun is shining, the temperature is perfect, and the cool tropic breezes are sweeping across our ten cushion surface courts. You can play all day, and at night, too. Take lessons from a pro, and join a round-robin tournament. 
There's more than tennis at the Royal Biscayne. There's swimming in a freshwater pool, dining in three gourmet restaurants, nightly dancing and romantic evenings. There's golf on 18 championship holes nearby. And all the excitement of Miami just a drive away. The Royal Biscayne Beach Hotel and Racquet Club. It's the perfect vacation for tennis fans and their families. For information, see your travel agent or call Royal Biscayne toll-free at 800-325-3535. That's 800-325-3535. The Royal Biscayne Beach Hotel and Racquet Club. Very good. Very good. Another example of the tennis madness. Hey, you know, uh, no, really. Uh, no, no, wait. Let's be historical about this gang. And I did not say hysterical. Let's be historical about it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a of one of the great madnesses of uh, of modern times, and it is it's a, it's a it's a mania, the tennis mania. But uh, you know this mania has historical precedence, so people think no, it's not a mania. Tennis has arrived; it will be forever. Don't you believe it? Now you're getting mad already when I'm saying that, but it's uh, it has historical precedence. Did you know that in the 1920s? There was a mania that swept America very much like this, where all the elegant people played a sport, and all the people who couldn't play it went to watch the elegant people play it, which is essentially what tennis is. Because, you know, it costs an arm and a leg and two, two feet and half of your molars to play an hour and a half of tennis anywhere. Even if you start bouncing it on a concrete sidewalk, a guy will run up and say, your time is up, please. There's another uh, quartet waiting and uh, now the the what sport is that, gentlemen? That is correct. That's the first question you've answered since the time I asked you your name. That's very good. And then you had trouble with that one. However, uh, that's right. That's correct. That the sport is polo. And it's going to be hard for you to credit the idea, gang out there, that in fact there's a very famous picture that uh, I have uh, somewhere in my archives of Dilbat pictures, a very famous picture of guess who? Who was? I'll bet you'd never guess who was the most dedicated polo players in Hollywood. If I told you, you'd flip. W. C. Fields. That is correct. And there's a picture of Fields in his in his private life. He was not the character that he lived on the screen. That's like. People think that he must have gone around saying things like, I got out of my way. No way. He was another type of guy. He was There was a streak of uh, um, unrepentant elegance in his work, <laughs> the other side of him. And he, here was a famous picture of, of W.C. Fields, Adolf Manjou. I like that for a, du a duet. W.C. Fields, Adolf Manjou, John Houston, who's the director, uh, uh, William Barthelmus, or Richard Barthelmus, who's a famous movie star of the period, and I think uh, Greta Garbo and Drag. But nevertheless, here was this crowd out there playing polo. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it reminds me exactly of a group picture of Ethel Kennedy, Robert Redford, Peter Lawford, and uh, three agents all playing doubles, <laughs> and everybody going out to see them. Same mania. And by the way, it also involved a sport which was basically limited to the wealthy. Tennis is a, is, a, is, a, is a rich man's sport, you know, philosophically. This is why it's on all the uh, so-called educational channels. Poor men's sports never get on those channels. No way. And, uh, you know, yeah, you know, the idea that you're, you're, uh, <laughs> you're hitting a ball and wearing white shorts gives it culture. 
if you're hitting the ball and wearing knickers, that's something that they do out at Shea and beer drinkers watch. <laughs> and that ain't culture. That's what we're against. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, you get into these, uh, these uh, historical things here, and, and it's hard to believe that at one time, you're going to say, whoa, wait a minute, Polo was never, oh, yes, Polo was extremely popular. Do you know that Polo at one time drew crowds bigger than tennis crowds, people to watch it? As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the Polo matches out on Long Island, uh, the Polo matches at the Armory, they had them uh, in the Armories here, were, were like the same kind of fanaticism, and, and all over the country, kids were, were running around with, with who didn't have horses even. We're running around and hitting, uh, what do they call the the uh, the ball in polo? All right, what is the what do they call the weapon with which you hit the ball in polo? A what? No, no, you're thinking of mahjong. That's a that's a. <laughs> although there's some parallel. Uh, they uh, they the, that is called what is it called? It's called the mallet. All right. And so they're going around, and they're, you know, they're whipping these mallets around, and you can buy mallets, believe it or not. Mallets were sold in every sporting goods store and even in drug stores the way today they sell tennis rackets. And uh, that's how the polo shirt, which, you are, which people wear, got popular. The polo shirt became popular during the 20s uh, <laughs> because uh, the, polo, the polo sport was tremendously popular. I wonder how many people relate the polo shirt to polo. Actual polo, the sport. Uh, well, the, that's that's uh, that's a fact that the that the people would see these guys play polo. You know, it was a big deal, and they saw these great shirts they wore, and that's a polo shirt. Actually, that's the kind of just like a football shirt. You know, you know what a football jersey looks like, or a uh, like a, a, a swim tank top looks like. Well, that's these are all from sports. So, so uh, the polo shirt became extremely popular because. Polo swept the nation, and in fact, it was on all the front page of all the sports uh, sports pages. It's fascinating to read the headline: uh, 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 Ten goal polo player stars yesterday as the uh, the uh, Long Island uh, Mustangs defeated the uh, the uh, Boston Colts. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And this is the Tommy Hitchcock stars scores eight goals. And, uh, of course, people follow these guys around like, like today they follow Nastasi around. And uh, that's right. And it's hard to believe now, I know it, when you're in the middle of any kind of a, a mania, it's hard to believe it will be over. You, you just can't believe it. <laughs> you know, you say, what do you mean? It can't come out. Huh, it's, no way it could be over. Well, just a few years ago, there was a, uh, there was a fantastic rage in this country in fact, it was so big that people would wait for hours. What sport was it? They would wait for hours and sometimes never even get in. They would wait for hours at Madison Square Garden to see this sport, just walking around yucks. And uh, you just never hear of it anymore. It's gone completely. What sport was that? I mean, it's disappeared even. <laughs> the sport has disappeared like the great auk. Uh, all right, I'll tell you what it is. It's the six-day bike race. Did you know they had six-day bicycle races at Madison Square Garden? And, and, and it was a great mania. And uh, people said, what do you mean? Uh, if you were to go up to a guy waiting in line to buy a ticket to the six-day bike races, that just a few years after that, he would look you right in the eye and not even remember that he went there, much less uh, remember what the sport was. He would, uh, you know, he would uh, come on. 
Well, I'll tell you, as a, as a kid, I'll tell you one thing. If you're, if you're, you know, you talk about archaic sports. As a kid, uh, my old man one time, I was about six, and uh, my old man was really into this thing. See, and uh, so he took me to a place in Chicago, which was the Chicago Arena. And now you, this is no little place. This is where the Blackhawks play. It's a big deal. See, the Chicago. Stadium Arena, it's a, it's a, where the Blackhawks play. That's a big stands and all that around there, you know. And they were waiting, thousands of people waiting in line. And the old man took me and my kid brother, and, uh, and, uh, my mother refused to go. She had much more sense than anybody. And, uh, we waited in line for hours. We finally got in. And here we are, we're sitting way up, what would be, what would be the 50 cent seats, you know, at the, at a Rangers game. And they uh, were way up there, back of the loudspeakers where you couldn't see anything, you know. And, and they were sitting up there, twenty thousand people, and they're cheering. And down on the floor, where the where the uh, where the actual ice rink was, there was no ice rink in there this time. See, this is another sport. Remember, down on the floor in this tremendous spotlight, were these four people playing a sport which was so popular that what they were doing, every move they made, was flashed all over the country, and people were sitting in various places, and they could see it happening on screens. What was the sport? It's probably the only national sport played in tuxedos. That's correct. <laughs> Would you actually believe that people waited in line to sit miles back to watch four people play bridge? And the the uh, that's correct. And the the uh, it's hard to believe it. And the guy that was the star of the bridge world, there was this. Uh, he was like the combined Roger Maris, Ted Williams. Uh, Pele of the bridge world. He was down there seeing everybody. Every time he would just go <coughs> past the bridge mix, the crowd would cheer. You know, he did it with such style. Who was that? Eli Culbertson. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's hard to believe. And guys, as a matter of fact, uh, they, just like today, they had bridge professionals where, uh, you know, the tennis professionals are suddenly proliferated. They've come out of the woodwork, see? Anybody who can hit a ball more than 20 feet is now teaching people who can't even hold the racket. So, you know, the blind leading the blind. You see some unbelievable tennis pros around. Well, in those days, apparently, that the uh, bridge professional became a tremendous big deal, and everywhere people went, they would go to the professional. And, uh, you know, they would play a, a practice hand, you know. And the pro would say, well, now, look, when you throw the card out, and you say, uh, tool no trump. Just flip it with your wrist. Do not just lay it out. This is a psychological ploy which... <laughs> Would you please hit the money button, please? Hit it. Speaking of... Uh, yeah. So, there will be a day, not too long from now, when you'll find that dusty tennis racket buried at the bottom of the, of the overshoes and all the old worn-out sweaters. You'll say, gee, you remember them days? Uh, da -da -dum -dum. Sooner or later, yes, friends, you'll own generals. No tire has ever made it. There was not a flag rank. I've never heard of a tire called Corporals. For 60 years, General Tire has been building long mileage tires, and now the 40,000-mile dual steel radial. It's a biggie. It starts with a road-hugging radial fly body, and then two strong steel blunts. I <laughs> built around. I just read the copy. I build around the body for long mileage and puncture protection. And remember the song. You can't forget it. It goes through your head all night long, right? Sooner or later, you love generals. I say. Uh,
Oh, it's the Munchkins. Bring them in. <laughs> That's the worst recording I ever heard. Bring it out there. Oh, well, I hope the show's better. Candide, the Leonard Bernstein, Hell Prince musical, now at the Broadway Theater, has been hailed by critics as the musical of all time. Oh, Candide at the Broadway Theater is a show for young and old. And there are three peanuts for everyone. That'll help it go down easier. Poor Candide. It's just, that's just the kind of stuff he did satires on. I mean, a show that you got to go to see with a bag of peanuts in your hand. All right, friends, uh, which high-potency vitamin do physicians and pharmacists recommend most? Ho-ho, guess, guess, ha-ha, Theragran, of course, and Theragran M. I, you know, the first time I read this, I thought that was something you sent to your mother on Mother's Day. You know, and you, they counted the words. I'm sorry, Theragran M. That's the way this mimeograph machine works in the ditto room here. You can't read it half the time. But uh, nevertheless, these are by Squibb, and the name Squibb on the label means that you have no doubt about the honor or the integrity of the maker. These are true vitamins. Thirty free when you buy 100. That's a month, a month supply for one person. So get down there. The offer is limited. Let's see. You can see this great offer at the Mill Park Pharmacy, 6202 Avenue V, Brooklyn, New York. Oh, another freebie. If understanding our problems is the first step in solving them, then television news should do more. So says a British TV journalist in the new issue of TV Guide magazine. His ideas on how TV news can help us understand our problems make interesting and important reading. In the same issue, find out how some experts rate crime shows. Many law officials are on record with their thoughts. What do the men behind bars think? TV Guide went behind prison walls to find out what convicts watch and why. TV Guide's cover story offers proof positive that the bite of the vaudeville bug is often permanent. Buddy Ebsen, a hoofer during the Depression, still wants to dance. In spite of his successful TV series, he's getting his old act together. Don't miss this word and picture report in TV Guide, America's biggest selling magazine. The new Lowe's Monte Carlo Hotel is alive with life. Watch the Grand Prix from the terrace. Dine on international cuisine in five restaurants. Enjoy international stars in the Folie Russe Supper Club. Play roulette at the only in-hotel casino on the Riviera. For reservations at Lowe's Monte Carlo, call 586-5099 or the Lowe's toll-free number in your area. Lowe's Monte Carlo Hotel. Ah, can one of the founders of SDS, a leader of the peace movement, win the hearts and votes of George Wallace's constituency and also be married to Jane Fonda at the same time? It's an exciting soap opera. That's what Tom Hayden is trying to do in the uh, California Democratic primary, writes Paul Cowan in this week's Village Voice. That's Paul Cowan. Hayden's populist themes appeal to Wallace supporters, but his entry into the political mainstream against Senator John Tunney has aroused suspicions on the suspicious left. Read the fascinating story of Tom Hayden's efforts to turn the radicalism of the 60s into the grassroots politics of the 70s. Will he be happily married? Will the rain stop? Will the flood subside? Read this week's voice at your newsstand. Bahrain blues, says you're saying with the kid. What is it? Sit down and cry. 
What kind of commercial is this? I got the berry blues. I got the berries. I got the berries. I ain't got no berries. Berry blues. I got no berries. I got no berries. I ain't got no berries. Yeah, berry cookies, friends, are sparkling, delicious, good for you. They're mild kind, and they go on easy. They're uh, chocolate chip, they're little round things, and they're great. They're called berries. Berries, berry, berries. And by the way, the King Cullum supermarkets are featuring berries' best chocolate chip now. Sugar or sugar fudge cookies at 79 cents. So sing it out. I ain't got no berries, I say I ain't. I said, I'm a grown-up person. Ridiculous. Yeah. Sometimes you wonder if anybody's grown up. And it's silly. You know, uh, speaking of uh, silliness, though, that I, I, I'm talking to Stan, see. You didn't think I was going to get back at story, right? The little drama that was played out in the chock full of nuts. And I said, uh, okay, Stan, you can tell me. He said, well, what makes you think I can tell you? Why do people always come to me and say, you can be honest with me? Well, I never thought about that, Stan. Uh, come to think of it, uh, I'm not so sure you can be honest with me. So, all right, okay, now I will level. As long as you're going to level, I'll level. I says, what is it, Stan? He says, that's, well, that's a long story. I said, Stan, these seats in the chocolate nuts are designed to be comfortable for roughly 19 minutes. When you exceed that, your left foot goes to sleep first. After which your right foot goes to sleep and it slowly creeps up your body until it's your head. It says, now we've been there for 24 minutes and I'm already feeling my left foot. It's dragging on the ground. And he says, all right, I'll tell you. No long story. It's Louise. I says, Louise again. Scream me again. I don't come around and talk about your women. I says, Stan, you brought it up. I didn't say Louise has given me trouble. It's you that's getting the trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, that's Louise. I said, well, what, what's the trouble this time? You remember the last time we I told you about his trouble with Louise, with the uh, record player, and he fixed it, and uh, she put on all her Merle Haggard records on the record player, and the arm kept throwing them out the window, and uh, she claimed that it was a psychological rejection of Merle Haggard, which represented a psychological rejection of him, and uh, he says, no, it's just that, this damn turntable that he bought on sale at Great Eastern. And uh, it just, you know, nobody believes anybody anymore. So I says, look, don't, don't, don't tell me about the, about the record player. Is it the tape recorder now? It's worse. I said, worse? Couldn't be. After that last time when she left and went to Chicago for three weeks, it's worse than that? So, wow. He says, it's worse than the time she started to read The Village Voice. I says, oh, boy, that, that, can, that can turn her head. He says, it did for six or seven weeks. She ran away, went to Acapulco with uh, Dolores, came back six months later. It's funny. Grew a mustache. I said, well, you know, I said, well, <laughs> Louise is making it. He says, well, I don't know what she's making it, but she's really bugged this time. I said, what about her brother? I says, her brother, what's, what's it got to do with you? I gotta support him now. I said, You gotta support Louise's brother? He says, Yeah. So why? He's six feet seven. Weighs two hundred and fourteen pounds, has four degrees. 
He can crush beer bottles just between his thumb and his forefinger. What is it you're supporting him? He says, that damn comet. I says, the damn comet? What do you mean? The damn comet. Her brother Howard has a warehouse just outside of Jersey City filled with 750,000 color photographs of the comet Kohutek. He has been taking out ads for years trying to sell them. He sold four last month at 10 cents apiece. Plus the fact he's got 250 Kohutek t-shirts. He's broke. I said, by God, Stan, that's right. I hadn't heard of Kahootek along for a long time. Whatever happened to that thing? This was the biggest bust of the 20th century. That's what happened. And now I'm supporting that lout. I said, gee, that, that, that's true. <laughs> that reminds me of a friend of mine. He, he turned out, <laughs> he turned out to 25,000 pewter peace buttons just before the war was over. <laughs> he also invested heavily in the age of Aquarius. I said, ah, that's right, the age of Aquarius. Whatever happened to that one? Well, that's gone, you know. I like a lot of things, like the greening of America, all those great things of the past, Eric Siegel and all those guys. You remember that bunch? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Those were momentary summer madnesses. And then I, I, I was reminded... Of a, of a, I try to, you know, encourage Stanley. I said, Stanley, listen, if you think you're mad at the heavenly bodies, I mean, it's not the, you, you know, make you hate all comets. I mean, that Kahootak thing, that was a bomb. Worst bomb. I, CBS tried an entire series. Remember they tried a whole big special on the Kahootak there? And all it wound up was listening to the two hours of Edwin Newman complain about the fact that things weren't working, which is all he ever does anyway. And, uh, you know, but they did it two hours on the network. <laughs> and then they took a boat out. You remember the, the, the boat when all the people went out to sea to watch the Kahootek? That's like the, the famous cruise that was taken here not long ago. All the intellectuals went on a cruise and listened to Norman Mailer complain about how he was sick. And, uh, you know, it was a big intellectual cruise. They said, well, that's part of the madness of the 60s. You know, uh, I still have an invitation to Norman Mailer's 50th birthday, which ranks only with Mike Todd's birthday as the great ripoff of our time. And uh, you know it's part of the madness of the of the uh, of the time we live in. And uh, but I, I also was a victim at one time. So I told Stanley to try to encourage him that uh, it's easy to learn to hate the heavenly bodies. And uh, not everybody does. Most people get romantic and all teary eyed about them. They you know say Mars, the average guy. Oh wow, you know. You say uh, Venus. Oh. You say the moons of Saturn. <laughs> you know that's the way people are. They're dumb. And so, uh, I, uh, <laughs> having had a little experience with some of the heavenly bodies, I, uh, I just don't have the same feeling about it. And so I decided to tell Stanley the story. And you know, within five minutes, Stanley sat up straight and he began to eat briskly of his uh, his uh, chocolate brownie. He had a hot dog, and he drank two more uh, orange drinks. And uh, he even made a smart remark to the girl that was behind the counter, which got him nowhere, but it, it meant that his color was returning and his complexion was, you know, he was brightening and his tail was bushy again. It was because, you, shall I tell you the story of what happened to me? Well, all right. I am, uh, I am deep in... Uh, it's an Army story. By the way, the Army is extremely educational. More educational than anything I've ever been in. 
I mean, that's uh, that's why most guys, uh, when you mention Army to guys, they just sort of give you a long look. They don't say much about it. There's no way to tell a civilian about what it was like. No way. No matter what novels you tell. It's extremely educational. And by the way, not at all unpleasant. Education is very uh, uh, stimulating. Uh, and, uh, you know, it can be uh, taken uh, all different ways. Orally, it can be taken by the pill form. It can be taken by the... the uh, a salve form. Salve is often given at more of our elegant Eastern colleges. That's another kind of education. Three credit hours, and you get nothing but a little unguentine poured on your head. However, uh, there I was. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a cool eighteen. You see, and uh, life is a blank slate. I have, uh, of course, I was not aware of that. I thought that uh, that the slate was heavily written with deep and profound thoughts, all of which I had arrived at independently. <laughs> which is a common delusion of anyone who is 18. So, uh, oh, with, with, of course, with the exception of the present generation, which have arrived at all these thoughts independently and are profound. All present generations are always exempted from any discussion of a philosophical nature. Correct? Okay. So, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> there I am, you know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hanging around a company area. We have been in this... Uh, this jungle for probably a year at this point. And uh, I have learned many things. For one thing, I have enriched my vocabulary tremendously. I have heard words used ways uh, that I did not imagine before my entry into the Army that it can conceivably be used this way. In fact, you know, enlarging your vocabulary often means uh, actually uh, numerically reducing the number of words used, but using them with great care, expressiveness, and with uh, full knowledge of their ramifications and multiple meanings. There was a time it would take me 15, 20 minutes to say something, but I learned in the Army I could say an entire thought using two words over and over again. In fact, uh, I was once in a company. I'll never Did I ever tell you about the company I was in? The most fantastic educational experience I ever had in my life. Seriously that I was in transit one time, and I was uh, detached from my unit and everything, and I was all by myself, and I was, <laughs> you know, and when you're that way, you're very vulnerable. This is why guys get to have a, a certain attraction to and about and loyalty to their unit, because in your unit, it's like a family. You know where you are. You know, that's it. But if all of a sudden you're sent on detached duty, and you're sent through about 15 different uh, casual companies where you have no place, nothing, you get very nervous. And so one day I woke up in a company where, that I had arrived to at 2 o'clock in the morning the night before, all by myself, in a jeep, being driven by an angry corporal. The rain pouring down on us, and we arrived at, the, at, this, at these darkened tents. And the guy says, there's number 8. And I says, is that it? He says, yeah. He says, what the hell are you waiting for? I don't have all night. And so at that point, I, uh, this is the, you know, this is casual talk in the Army. You don't hear this kind of stuff in Army movies. You know, it's buddies always together. You know, hey, you want to see my picture, my girl? You know, that never happens. He says, what are you waiting for? Come on, move, will you, buddy? So I used the phrase which I learned to use so well in the Army at that time. It refers to a certain celebration that is celebrated by the buddies every week. And uh, you don't know that phrase. Well, you'll have to ask your friend. That, that comes next semester. So... <laughs> it's a something your buddy's week. So, uh, nevertheless, 
I, 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 I drag my, my bead bags out of the, out of the back of the Jeep, you know, the heavy driving rain, and I go into, I go into the tent, see, and each tent had a, had a, had a whitewashed number on the side of it. It was seven, eight, nine, uh, you know, big numbers. I'm not used to this kind of thing, you know, where the, where the numbers are real big, and they say eight. Usually the num- there were no numbers on tents. It's the first time I ran into this, I should have suspected something. It's a big eight like that. See, so uh, I-, I throw my bag in this thing, and there's about five guys in this tent, and it was an empty bunk. Somebody had stolen all the blankets off of it. There was no there was no mattress, no mattress or anything. So I throw my bags up on the up on the thing there, and I go down to the orderly room, which is lit, and there's this corporal sleeping there behind the desk. And I go in and I say, <clears throat> Corporal. He looks up at me and just looks at me. I says, uh, I'm an eight. And there ain't no blanket in eight on my bunk. At which point he used the phrase, which I had used to the corporal. So I knew there was getting no blanket from this guy that night. So I drifted out into the rain and I decided to sleep under my barracks bag. <laughs> since it was now 22 degrees and uh, so I did I laid my barracks bag I had two barracks bags one I put over my feet and the other one I put over my my, my chest and I laid on the bunk there uh, hoping to keep warm under the barracks bags I'm not kidding this is actually the true story so I had my raincoat on I slept my raincoat well about eight and a half milliseconds after I laid on the bunk <laughs> big cannon goes off and the the walls of the tank <laughs> from the crash at a cannon and I, I, <laughs> I stagger up and I hear in the other five bunks I hear these muffled curses another bright day had begun uh, of course it began in Stygian darkness it was it was 4.10 a.m. that's when Reveille was in this company and at that point on came a taped a, a tape bugle and it went, <laughs> and then, they're playing the stars and stripes, and they have, they have 12 million watts of audio. And the tent is rocking from this time. Oh, God. I get up in the darkness, and of course, I'm totally dressed. So I don't have to put on anything. I discovered everybody else in the tent is dressed. So damn cold in that tent you slept. Guys went for seven, eight years in that company, never took their shoes off. So at that point, we go staring out in the company street, and it's dark out there. And I see this huddled figure. It's the, it's the company sergeant. He's looking at a clipboard with a flashlight. And he starts howling out the names. Adams! And you hear, yo! Baker! Yo! Charlie! Yo! And he's going all the way down. And he comes to me. He says, Shepard! I go, yo! He pauses. He walks around with his light, and he shines it in my face. He said, uh-huh, I want a good look at you. I said, what the hell have I done? At that point, he goes back. I just, he comes back into the, into, the, into the front of the company there, and he keeps going on. Wisniewski, yo! Kluberman, yo! Yablonski, yo! Sinsmeister, yo! Company, hurt, hurt! Hurt, 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 We start marching away. We're going towards the mess hall. The mess hall, by the way, consisted of a long shed that was uh, darkened uh, for, for want of uh, blackout curtains. It was dark, dingy, and you could smell the smell of frying kerosene, which, by the way, was a uh, very popular, very popular frying uh, 
uh, oil used in the army, especially on days when we had what was called euphemistically French toast. The army knew how to make French toast to fit all tastes. Each slice fit every taste. Curious, one half of the French toast was burnt and the other was raw. So if you liked it in between, you cu you cut the little slip, you know. <laughs> and so we lined up. We go into the we go into the mess hall, and I'm I'm looking around. I can't figure out what kind of a company this is. See, this is a wholly alien company, and these guys don't say anything. The only thing they said was uh, an occasional ancient Anglo-Saxon word. All I heard all the time, and I heard it used many ways in this line. And and, and here I thought after a year in the army that I knew how to use these phrases. But this crowd, I, I, it was, they were all artists, every last one of them. And they didn't talk to each other. They just sort of isolated and muttered constantly. And we slowly start moving into the mess hall. I'm moving along there, seeing a guy keeps nudging me in the back. He's got a bayonet in his belt. He keeps hitting me with a bayonet handle, and he keeps bumping me. And I turn around, see, and I know what kind of a company I'm in now. I turn around, and before I can say it, he says it to me. All right? So then I start hitting the guy ahead of me with my helmet between the shoulder blades. See, this is <laughs> this is a real friendly company. I keep going bumping like that. See, we finally get into the mess hall, and I sit down. Now the mess hall had all the all the plates were laid upside down as you sat down at one of the benches. See, the bench the mess hall had benches. They were like picnic tables. Five guys on the side, right? And so I sit down, see, and look around, wearing my fatigues, and uh, there on top of my overturned cereal bowl was a little box of Wheaties, a single box of Wheaties. You got it? Okay. Everybody had a box of Wheaties on his on his uh, cereal, and they had a big pitcher of milk down at the other end of the table. And at that point, the corporal, who was up at the front there, the guy that was in charge of the mess hall, he says, All right, you guys. First mess hall I ever saw, nobody said anything in it. See? Just the, uh, They were silent. It was like being in a prison, you know, where the guys with the cups and all that yelling and pounding on the table. So he says, uh, all right, you guys, eat. Well, okay, so at that point, just as I, 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 I start to reach for my, my bowl of Wheaties, and there was a KP coming down the, down the aisle with a great big tray of French toast, see, I look down at my Wheaties, I start to reach, and suddenly somebody gives me a shot in the back of me who was at the next table. See, I turn around, just as I turn around, this guy gives me a mean look. He gave me a shot in the liver, I'll tell you. And I said, all right. And I said, you know, what do you usually say in an army mess line to this guy? And he says it back with a different inflection. And then I turn back. My box of Wheaties is gone. Somebody has stolen my breakfast. I look, here are these nine impassive faces looking at me. Have you ever been in a place that was so mean where they stole your breakfast? I mean, I can understand a watch. Your socks, even. What's your breakfast? So I looked at the five guys sitting opposite me, just sitting there with their crew cuts looking mean, and I hunched over my bowl, see, and I reached over and I grabbed, before anybody could do anything, I grabbed the pitcher of milk. I just grabbed it. And I poured the pitcher of milk into my bowl. All of it. In this bowl. See, I poured it in. I drank it without letting go of the milk. I poured it in again. I drank another bowl of milk. The guy down the other says, Flash of milk. 
at which point I used the word again to describe what he should do to himself. There was an impasse. See? It was ten mean people, tough mean people. Don't think for a minute I'm Woody Allen. I was hard as a rock and twice as mean. The ten of us just sat there. Funny, I just take the milk and I shove it the guy next to me. I just shove it in his gut. I says, here's your milk. At which point, he answers me in kind. The same word. We sat there through the entire breakfast, conversing in Anglo-Saxon phrases. I spent one week in that company. And every night, they would go around with, with flashlights and look under the mess hall for guys that had gone AWOL. That kind of company. Mean. And it turns out, you know what the company was? It was a group of GIs who had been taken out of stockades all over the world who were illiterate and were being taught to read. That's why they had the big eight. See, they couldn't read a little eight. They had a big eight. See, they says eight. Put up one, two, three, four fingers. You put up four fingers on the other hand, and that's the eight. That's where you sleep. Little did I realize that at that point they couldn't read, and why the guy stole the box of Wheaties? He didn't know it was Wheaties. It was just a box of something. Could have been anything. Full of wristwatches. Oh, the Army is educational, friends. Oh, this is W.O.R. New York. Stay tuned for the Elegant in Conversation, which follows. <laughs>